Chapter Three of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. At this time, the necessity for special knowledge as to artistic or educational matters was recognized grudgingly in Benham. Any reputable citizen was considered capable to pass judgment on statues and pictures, design a house or public building, and prescribe courses of study for school children. Since then, the freeborn Benhamite, little by little, through wise legislation or public opinion born of bitter experience, has been robbed of these prerogatives. Until not long ago, the un-American and undemocratic proposition to take away the laying out of the new city park from the easy-going but ignorant mercies of the so-called city forester, who had been first a plumber and later an alderman, prevailed. An enlightened civic spirit triumphed and special knowledge was invoked. That was twenty-five years later. Mrs. Hallett Taylor had found herself almost single-handed at the outset in her purpose to build a new church on artistic lines. Or rather, the case should be stated thus. Everyone agreed that it was to be the most beautiful church in the country consistent with the money, and no one doubted that it would be, especially as everyone except Mrs. Taylor felt that in confiding the matters to the leading architect in Benham, the committee would be exercising a wise and intelligent discretion. Mr. Pierce, the individual suggested, had never until recently employed the work architect in speaking of himself, and he pronounced it as did some of the committee architect, shying a little at the word, as though it were caviar and anything but American. He was a builder, practiced by a brief but rushing career in erecting houses, banks, schools, and warehouses speedily and boldly. He had been on the spot when the new growth of Benham began, and his handiwork was writ large all over the city. The city was proud of him, and had, as it were, sniffed when Joel Flagg went elsewhere for a man to build his new house. Surely, if it were necessary to pay extra for that sort of thing, was not home talent good enough? Yet it must be confessed that the ugly splendor of the flag medieval castle had so far dazed the eye of Benham that its architect had felt constrained, in order to keep up with the times, to try fancy flights of his own. He had silenced any doubting Thomases by his latest effort. A new schoolhouse, rich in rampant angles and scrolls, on the brownstone front of which the name Flag School appeared in ambitious, distorted hieroglyphics. Think what a wealth of imagery in the tossing of the second O on top of the L. If artistic novelty and genius were sought for the new church, here it was ready to be invoked. Besides, Mr. Pierce was a brother-in-law of one of the members of the committee. And though the committee had the fear of God in their hearts in the erection of the sanctuary, it was not easy to protest against the near relative of a fellow member, especially one so competent. The committee numbered seven. Selma had been chosen to fill a vacancy caused by death, but at the time of her selection the matter was still an embryo, and the question of an architect had not been mooted. At the next meeting arose as to whether Mr. Pierce should be given the job under the eagle eyes of a subcommittee or Mrs. Taylor's project of inviting competitive designs should be adopted. It was known that Mr. Glynn, without meaning disrespect to Mr. Pierce, 
favored the latter plan as more progressive, a word always attractive to Benham ears when they had time to listen. Its potency, coupled with veneration for the pastor's opinion, had secured the vote of Mr. Clyme, a banker. Another member of the committee, a lawyer, favored Mrs. Taylor's idea because of a grudge against Mr. Pierce. The chairman and brother-in-law and a hard-headed stove-dealer were opposed to the competitive plan as highfalutin and unnecessary. Thus the deciding vote lay with Selma. Now they were on the same committee. Mrs. Taylor could not altogether make her out. She remembered that Mr. Glynn had said the same thing. Mrs. Taylor was accustomed to conquests. Without actual premeditation, she was agreeably conscious of being able to convert and sweep most opponents off their feet by the force of her pleasant personality. In this case, the effect was not so obvious. She was conscious that Selma's eyes were constantly fixed upon her, but as to what she was thinking, Mrs. Taylor felt less certain. Clearly, she was mesmerized, but was the tribute admiration or hostility? Mrs. Taylor was piqued and put upon her mettle. Besides, she needed Selma's vote. Not being skilled in the psychological analysis, she had to resort to practical methods and invited her to afternoon tea. Selma had never been present at afternoon tea as a domestic function in her life, nor had she seen a home like Mrs. Taylor's. The house was no larger than her own and had cost less. Medicine had not been so lucrative as the manufacture of varnish. Externally, the house displayed stern lines of unadorned brick, the custom-made style of Benham in the first throes of expansion, before Mr. Pierce's imagination had been stirred. Mr. Taylor had bought it as it stood, and his wife had made no attempt to alter the outside, which was, after all, inoffensively homely. But the interior was bewildering to Selma's gaze, in its suggestion of cozy comfort. Pretty tasteful things, many of them inexpensive knick-knacks of foreign origin, a small picture, a bit of china, a medieval relic, were cleverly placed as a relief to the conventional furniture. Selma had been used to formalism in household garniture, to a best room, little used, and precise with the rigor of wax flowers and black horsehair, and to a living room, where the effect sought was purely utilitarian. Her new home, in spite of its colored glass and iron stag, was arranged in much this fashion, as were the houses of her neighbors, which she had entered. Selma managed to seat herself on the one straight-back chair in the room. From this she was properly driven by Mrs. Taylor and established in one corner of a lounge with soft silk cushions behind her, and further propitiated by the proffer of a cup of tea and a dainty cup and saucer. All this, including Mrs. Taylor's musical voice, easy speech, and ingratiating friendliness, alternately thrilled and irritated her. She would have liked to discard her hostess from her thought as a light creature unworthy of intellectual seriousness, but she found herself fascinated, and even thawed in spite of herself. "'I'm glad to have the opportunity, really, to talk to you,' said Mrs. Taylor. "'At the church reunions, one is so liable to interruptions. If I'm not mistaken, you taught school before you were married?' "'For a short time.' "'That must have been interesting. It's so practical and definite. My life,' she added deprecatingly, has been a thing of threads and patches a bit here and there. She paused, but without forcing a response, proceeded blithely to touch on her past by way of illustration. The war had come just when she was grown up, and her kin in Maryland were divided on the issue. Her father had taken his family abroad, but her heart was in the keeping of a young officer on the northern side, now her husband. 
loss of property and bitterness of spirit had kept her parents expatriated and she with them had journeyed from place to place in europe she had seen many beautiful places and beautiful things at last major taylor had come for her and carried her off as his bride to take up again her life as an american i am interested in benham she continued and i count on you mrs babcock to help make the new church what it ought to be artistically worthy of all the energy and independence there is in this place selma's eye kindled the allusion to foreign lands had aroused her distrust but her patriotic avowal warmed her pulses everyone is so busy with private affairs here owing to the rapid growth of the city pursued mrs taylor there is danger of our doing inconsiderately things which cannot easily be set right hereafter an ugly or tawdry-looking building may be an eyesore for a generation i know that we have honest skillful mechanics in benham but as trustees of the church funds shouldn't we at least make the effort to get the best talent there is if we have the cleverest architect here so much the better an open competition will enable us to find out after all benham is only one city among many and a very new city why shouldn't we take advantage of the ideas of the rest of the country the older portion of the country mr pierce built our house and we think it's very satisfactory and pretty selma's tone was firm but she eyed her hostess narrowly she had begun of late to distrust the aesthetic worth of the colored glass and metal stag and though she was on her guard against effrontery she wished to know the truth she knew that mr pierce with his fine business instinct had already conveyed to her husband the promise that he should furnish the varnish for the church in case of his own selection which as babcock had remarked would be a nice thing all around mrs taylor underwent the scrutiny without flinching i have nothing to say against mr pierce he is capable within his lights indeed i think it quite possible that we shall get nothing more satisfactory elsewhere mr flagg's grim pile is anything but encouraging that may sound like an argument against my plan but in the case of the flag house there was no competition merely enlightened choice on the one side and ignorant experimenting on the other you don't seem to think very highly of the appearance of benham said selma the remark was slightly interrogative but was combative withal she wished to know if everything from the flag mansion down was open to criticism but she would fain question the authority of the censor this glib graceful woman whose white starched cuffs seemed to make light of her own sober unadorned wrists this time mrs taylor flushed faintly she realized that their relations had reached a critical point and that the next step might be fatal she put down her teacup and leaning forward said with smiling confidential eagerness i don't i wouldn't admit it to anyone else but what's the use of mincing matters with an intelligent woman like you i might put you off now and declare that benham is well enough but you would soon divine what i really think and that would be the end of confidence between us i like honesty and frankness and i can see that you do my opinion of benham architecture is that it is slipshod and mongrel there you see i put myself in your hands but i do so because i feel sure you nearly agree with me already you know it's so but you hate to acknowledge it selma's eyes were bright with interest she felt flattered by the appeal and there was a righteous assurance of mrs taylor's manner which was convincing she opened her mouth to say something what she did not know but mrs taylor raised her hand by way of interdiction don't answer yet let me show you what i mean i'm as proud of benham as any one i'm absorbed by the place 
I look to see it in fifty years hence, perhaps less a great city and a beautiful city, too. Just at present, everything is commercial and ethical. Yes, ethical. We wish to do and dare, but we haven't had time to adorn as we construct. That is, most of us haven't. But if a few determined spirits, women though they be, cry, Hull, Art may get a chance here and there to assert herself. Look at this, she said, gliding across the room and holding up a small vase of exquisite shape and coloring. I picked it up on the other side, and it stands almost for a lost art. The hands and taste which wrought it represent the transmitted patience and skill of hundreds of years. We like to rush things through in a few weeks on a design hastily conceived by a Mr. Pierce because we are so earnest. Now we won't do it this time, will we? No, we won't, said Selma. I see what you mean. I was afraid at first that you didn't give us credit for the earnestness for the ethical part. That's the first thing, the great thing according to my idea, and it's what distinguishes us from foreigners. The foreigners who made that vase, for instance. But I agree with you that there's such a thing as going too fast. And very likely some of the buildings here aren't all they might be. We don't need to model them on foreign patterns, but we must have them pretty and right. Certainly, certainly, my dear, what we should strive for is originality. American originality, but soberly, slowly. Art is evolved painfully little by little. It can't be bought ready-made at shops for the asking like tea and sugar. If we invite designs for the new church, we shall give the youths of the country who have ideas seething in their heads a chance to express themselves. Who knows, but we may unearth a genius. Who knows, echoed Selma with her spiritual look. Yes, you're right, Mrs. Taylor, I will help you. As you say, there must be hundreds of young men who would like to do just that sort of thing. I know myself what it is like to live in a small place without the opportunity to show what one can do, to feel the capacity, but to be without the means and occasion to reveal what is in one. And now that I understand, we really look at things the same way. I'm glad to join with you in making Benham beautiful. As you say, we women can do much if we only will. I have the greatest faith in women's missions in this new interesting nation of ours, haven't you, Mrs. Taylor? Don't you believe that she is in her new sphere of usefulness as one of the greatest forces in the moving of the Republic? Selma was talking rapidly and had lost every trace of suspicious restraint. She spoke as one transfigured. Yes, indeed, answered Mrs. Taylor, checking any disposition she may have felt to interpose qualifications. She could acquiesce generally without violence to her convictions, and she could not afford to imperil the safety of the immediate issue, her church. I felt sure you would feel so if you only had time to reflect, she added. If you vote with us, you will have the pleasant consciousness of knowing that you have advanced women's cause just so much. You may count on my vote. Selma stopped on her way home, although it was late, to purchase some white cuffs. As she approached, her husband stood on the grass plot in his shirt sleeves with a garden hose. He was whistling, and when he saw her, he kissed his hand at her jubilantly. Well, sweetheart, where have you been? Visiting, taking tea with Mrs. Taylor. I promised her to vote to invite bids for the church plans. Babcock looked surprised. That'll throw Pierce out, won't it? Not unless someone else submits a better design than he. Lewis scratched his head. I considered that order for varnish as good as booked. I'm not sure Mr. Pierce knows as much as he thinks he does, said Selma oracularly. 
We shall get plans from New York and Boston. If we don't like them, we needn't take them. But that's the way to get an artistic thing. And we're going to have the most artistic church in Benham. I'm sorry about the varnish, but the principle is involved. Babcock was puzzled but content. He cared far more for the disappointment to Pierce than for the loss of the order. But apart from the business side of the question, he never doubted that his wife must be right. Nor did he feel obliged to inquire what principle was involved. He was pleased to have her associate with Mrs. Taylor, and was satisfied that she would be a credit to him in any situation where occult questions of art or learning were mooted. He dropped his hose and pulled her down beside him on the porch settee. There was a beautiful sunset, and the atmosphere was soft and refreshing. Selma felt satisfied with herself. As Mrs. Taylor had said, it was her vote which would turn the scale on behalf of progress. Other things, too, were in her mind. She was not ready to admit that she had been instructed, but she was already planning changes in her own domestic interior, suggested by what she had seen. She let her husband squeeze her hand, but her thoughts were wandering from his blandishments. Presently she said, Louis, I've begun lately to doubt if that stag is really pretty. The stag? Well, now I've always thought it tasty. One of the features of our little place. No one would mistake it for a real deer. It looks to me almost comical. Babcock turned to regard judiciously the object of her criticism. I like it he said somewhat mournfully, as though he were puzzled. But if you don't, we'll change the stag for something else. I wish you to be pleased, first of all. Instead, we might have a fountain. Two children under an umbrella I saw the other day. It was cute. How does that strike you? I can't tell without seeing it, and Lewis, promise me that you won't select anything new of that sort until I have looked at it. Very well, Babcock answered submissively but he continued to look puzzled. In his estimate of his wife's superiority to himself and the subtleties of life, it had never occurred to him to include the choice of everyday objects of art. He had eyes and could judge for himself like any other American citizen. Still, he was only too glad to humor Selma in such an unimportant matter, especially as he was eager for her happiness. End of chapter 3